Support comes from Empower Missouri's Week of Action with in-person and virtual advocacy training for affordable housing, criminal justice, and food security initiatives, March 25th through 28th. Registration at empowermissouri.org WOA. From St. Louis Public Radio. This is Politically Speaking. The 2023 Missouri Legislative Session is officially underway. This session brings not only new lawmakers and new bills to pass, but also new leadership. On this episode of Politically Speaking, new House floor leader John Patterson joins the show. The Lee Summit Republican speaks on what he feels his caucus can accomplish this year. Let's hit the music. This is the Politically Speaking podcast, the definitive show about Missouri politics. My promise to St. Louis was that I would do the absolute most for each and every person, starting with those who have the very least. What I wanted to do was look and see what other states are doing. We have to be willing to change those laws, that they are balanced and they affect everybody equally. As somebody that grew up in the St. Louis area, North St. Louis County, I didn't know any lawyers growing up. We gotta find long-term solutions to make government better, but also to be able to provide services to people. I don't wanna leave that federal money that we've been leaving all these years on the table. We need to be spending this money to take care of Missourians. I thought we accomplished a lot this year, but a lot more needs to be done. Welcome to Politically Speaking. I'm your host, State House and Politics reporter Sarah Kellogg. Joining me in St. Louis is my co-host, St. Louis Public Radio's political correspondent. Jason Rosenbaum. And our guest today, joining me in the Jefferson City office, he is the Republican representative for the 30th District in the Missouri House and the new House floor leader. State Representative John Patterson. Thank you for joining us on the show, Representative, our first guest of 2023. Before you get started, I would love if you talked about, uh, for our listeners, your district, where it is and who you represent. Okay, well, thanks, Sarah and Jason. Uh, really glad to be with you. I'm from uh, Lee's Summit, and the new district is all Lee's Summit. And so it includes the north part of Lee's Summit and the uh, eastern part of Lee's Summit. And Lee's Summit has grown so much recently, we, we now have three state representatives that cover the area. And, you know, give us a little bit of background about yourself and why you decided to run for office. Well, I've uh, lived in Jackson County uh, for most of my life. I uh, grew up in Blue Springs went to public high school there, and then I went off to Mizzou, uh, where I went to college and medical school there. I uh, met my wife there, and then we moved back to Jackson County, and I did my surgical residency down at University Health. And then I went into, uh, I joined a private practice surgery group out in uh, eastern Jackson County, and I did that for 11 years. And, and why did you decide to, to make that jump over and run for office? Well, it was always something that had interested me, uh, politics and policy, uh, just growing up and in college. And, and I knew I wanted to be a, a surgeon, so I went and did that. And uh, there came a point where my state rep seat uh, came open and, um, you know, just discussed with my family about, you know, do we think we can do this? Um, do, you, do we think that I have anything uh, different to offer than somebody else? And ultimately, we decided that, that it was something that we could do. Um, my family supported it. My financial planner did not. But um, we ran. We were able to win. And um, here we are. Yeah, I want to touch on that. Did you have to stop doing surgery in order to do this job? No, I uh, did it part-time. And there have been some other physicians that have done it. But it, it's, it's a very hard thing to do. And um, as of this year, I no longer do the surgery part. 
um, just with this uh, new position, and uh, I really want to focus my time and energy on that. Yeah, speaking of that new position, running for office is one thing, and another is running for leadership. You know, why did you decide to, to run for House floor leader? Well, just like uh, when you're thinking about running for office, you have to ask yourself, do you think you can add something to the conversation? Do you think you can add something to the to the House Republican Conference? And, and I, um, after thinking about it, I really did feel like I could lead the caucus, and uh, you, you basically spend um, about a summer or a year running for the position, just meeting with the different members, meeting with them in their districts, going over your vision and their vision for the um, the House conference. And um, ultimately, I was able to get the, gain the support of my my colleagues. And it's a it's a huge honor to have, and uh, very humbling, and um, just kind of getting into the position now. You know, we're talking the day after the first day of session. And so kind of what are your thoughts now? One day down, I guess two technically. We had a technical session uh, today. But, you know, what are your thoughts going into session? How do you think it's going to run? Well, I'm very optimistic about the session. I thought uh, yesterday when we got sworn in, I thought it was great. I thought our speaker, Speaker Plocker, did a great job, gave a great speech and laid out our uh, House Republican vision for the session. I think uh, this session has the potential to be very productive. Um, and I say that you know, with cautious optimism, the leadership in the House and with the Democrats and the Republicans, I think we will find ways to, to work together and, and find areas that we can um, work together on. And then I think the Senate leadership, I, I've gotten to know them in the past month or so, and I'm very optimistic about working with them. And I think it could really be a great session. Uh, you, you mentioned cooperation between Democrats. Is there any specific issue that you have in mind where the two parties could tangibly work together? I do. I think let me I'll give you an example of one. Uh, there is legislation that would provide postpartum or or health care after the baby is delivered to the mom. Uh, we know that you can't have a healthy baby if you don't have a healthy mother. If the mother is sick or depressed or on drugs, uh, that baby doesn't have a chance uh, for its own health. So I think that is a bill that has broad support within uh, both the Democrat and Republican parties. And I think that is something that we'll be able to work on together. You know, House Minority Leader Crystal Quaid said her and her caucus have a good working relationship with both you and Speaker Dean Plocker. What are your what are your thoughts about the working relationship? And could you see that there could be some issues where that good working relationship suddenly turns into a not so good working relationship? Yeah, you know, I think in politics, the relationships can sour pretty fast if you let them. I think the, the thing that we have going for us is it's not something that's just come about for the past, you know, recently. Um, the speaker's been around for uh, six years now or seven years. He's been he's been building these relationships. I've been here four years now, and I've really tried to focus on just trying to understand where they're coming from and trying to get them to understand where we're coming from, not taking anything uh, too personally and, and not making things uh, personal. So I know they have their beliefs. I know they have their jobs to do, and, and we respect that. And I think if you come from a position of respect, you can overcome most of the problems that you'll come across. Last year at the end of session, then Speaker Rob Viscopo, you know, he said he did not believe that the Senate respected the House as a body. You know, coming new year, new leadership, you know, how have relationships been so far with the Senate communication, that kind of thing? The relationships have been great. And I've got a, a lot of respect for Speaker uh, Viscovo. 
I don't have uh, much history with the Senate, um, and, I, and I, I would never presume to speak for the Senate and their traditions and the way they go about doing things. I have a, a great deal of respect for them over there and the jobs that they have to do. Also, uh, it's kind of fortunate that five of the new senators are good friends that, that came over from the House, so I think that will be a, a factor. But I have a lot of respect for them over there, and, and we're just going to kind of work with them and, and uh, try to find common ground and, and get things done instead of you know, dealing with personalities or, or, thing, or personal fights. Uh, personal fights and personalities was probably one of the reasons why 2022 was not as productive as Republicans would like. And when we were at that press conference yesterday, I asked Speaker Plocker if acrimony that defined the last couple of years was a thing of the past. Here's a clip from that press conference. You know, I, I feel confident that the 163 members that serve in the House will work together. We, we're not going to have that infighting. I can only control and help control, really, let's be honest, it's hurting cats, but I can only work within the sandbox that I'm in. And the other half of the building has its has its ways and its rules on how it functions. I'll leave that up to them. They have good leadership over there. I'm confident they're going to work well together this year. I'm just really optimistic. And what's kind of implicit in my question, and I think what was said by Speaker Plocker is, there probably was some House Senate friction, but the most friction was actually within the Senate Republican caucus. And that really caused a lot of legislative havoc for Republicans. So how, again, you can't control the Senate, but how optimistic are you that that's not going to happen in 2023? Well, I'm, I'm cautiously optimistic. Like I said, I, I, I don't know the Senate as well as I do the House, and I would never presume to speak for any of them over there. The only thing I can do is just uh, look forward. And, and sometimes in politics, I think the best thing is to have a short memory. The fights of the past are not our fights. The people that are over there, um, some of them have left. So I, I'm, I'm going into it with a clean slate for everybody and, and a short memory. So uh, Speaker Plocker outlined some priorities in his speech, and I'd love to ask you about them. So uh, one of those is an additional tax cut. Do you think there will be an appetite for a tax cut since lawmakers just reduced taxes over a special session? I think there's always an appetite within the, the Missouri House Republican Conference anyway that, that we can always find a way to lower the tax burden on working families. Uh, our, our tax revenues are, are still very robust. We have $5, million or $5 billion in the general revenue fund. Some of that money ought to be, we ought to look at getting some of that money back to the citizens. Now, whether that's a tax cut from income, whether it's prop, personal property tax, I think we as House Republicans always want to look at how can we reduce the tax burden on the taxpayers. And we'll get to some of those specific ideas in a minute. But one of the people who was not enthused about uh, the prospect of more tax cuts is uh, House Minority Leader Crystal Quaid. Here is her speaking at a press conference yesterday. Absolutely not. <laughs> um, listen, we have $6 billion surplus. And as I've said many times, we have a, probably a once in a lifetime opportunity to make real investments in Missouri and Missourians. Um, of course, a tax cut sounds great. It's a one time thing. What we need to be doing as a legislature is looking at what investments can we make for the long haul when Missouri isn't in the same financial situation that we're in, we're still going to need to be paying for things. And so what can we be doing right now, looking beyond our own elected offices um, into the future? How do you continue to cut taxes without digging a hole two, three years from now when 
the financial situation of the state is not as good? Well, I think you have to do that very carefully, of course. You have to weigh the, the benefits and the, the harms that come with cutting taxes. But like, like she stated, we have uh, a huge surplus right now. And you wouldn't have to give all of that back in the form of tax cuts. But I do think if you're talking about an appetite, um, we do have an appetite for always seeing if we can reduce the tax burden on taxpayers, um, being mindful that things are not always going to be as rosy as they are and that revenues are not always going to be as robust. And some of that th the things that we've done in the past, like triggers, I think, are worth looking at. But it doesn't just have to be in the form of income tax cuts. I think personal property is a huge issue, at least where I'm from in Jackson County, and I know it is for some of your listeners. I think we can look at reforming that. But in terms of looking at tax cuts, I think it's something that, that's a priority for the Speaker and, and our House Republican caucus. I want to talk about that aforementioned surplus for a minute. And this is kind of a wonky question, but I think it's an important one. Um, it doesn't seem to make a lot of sense to just put $5 billion in an account and not do anything with it. Has there been any thoughts about maybe creating special accounts and then creating like one-time grant programs for localities to fight crime or to aid certain education uh, initiatives or, or just do something with that money on like one-time basis? Well, I haven't seen any hard plans, but I think you'll see that in the budget that comes out uh, in the next few weeks. I do agree with you that the money shouldn't just sit around. We do have to be mindful that revenues aren't always going to be this good, and some of that should be reserved for those days. But like you said, one of the things that we could do is make one-time grants to police departments or municipalities where they could hire or increase the pay of law enforcement officers. I think that would be a great thing to do and make an investment in those communities. You know, some Democrats have suggested cutting taxes for things like groceries or for feminine hygiene products. You know, would that be something that you think both parties could get behind? I think so. And I think we've, we've had such bills in the past, and they generally have a broad support within the both um, Republican and Democrat uh, parties. Other things you can do is we've looked at, you know, teacher pay is a huge issue. And we've looked at cutting income taxes for teachers so that we can we can retain and recruit some of those teachers. So all of those things are, are on the table. And again, they all reduce the tax burden for working families. We're going to get to education in a second. But you mentioned personal property tax. You know, what do you think the prospect is of phasing out or eliminating the personal property tax, which I know some people in Jefferson City is a major priority? Well, pro personal property tax reform is something that we would very much like to see. It's a huge issue, especially for people in Jackson County and I think maybe St. Charles County as well. Uh, but we want to be mindful that you don't rob Peter to pay Paul, take away the personal property tax, and then put the burden on uh, the real estate owners. So I think phasing it out is an idea. I'll give you one other idea that I think um, that we looked at last year but weren't able to get done. But, you know, the value of your car has gone way up in the pandemic. A used car is worth maybe more than it was when it was new. Uh, one of the things that we would like to have seen is that given the assessors the ability to look back within three years to assess, give the assessment of the car instead of using this kind of this false valuation so that people aren't paying as much as they were when the values skyrocketed. We need to take a quick break, but we'll be right back. 
If you have a smart speaker, you have access to the entire world of NPR and St. Louis Public Radio. All the latest news and all the captivating stories. Activate our voices with yours by telling your smart speaker to play St. Louis Public Radio. And we're back on Politically Speaking. I'm your host, St. Louis Public Radio's State House and Politics reporter, Sarah Kellogg. Joining me is my co-host, Jason Rosenbaum, political correspondent for St. Louis Public Radio. And our guest today is Republican Representative John Patterson, who represents the 30th House District, which includes parts of Jackson County. Let's get back into it. You mentioned education, so we have some questions about that. That's also something that uh, Speaker Plocker talked about, uh, you know, is... And we're going to also talk about personal property tax again. You know, with education, if the personal property tax is phased out, wouldn't that cut off a major funding stream for public schools? It might do that. And that's why I said that we, we have to do it in a way that it doesn't place too high of a burden on those localities that they can fund their public schools. That's why I think a phase out is necessary. But with real estate increasing in value, I think you could do that over time. Do you think that schools are going to likely see like a temporary windfall from the personal property tax hikes and and they may be able to use that money locally for capital improvement projects or maybe a one time pay increase for teachers without having the, the state get involved, basically? I think undoubtedly you will. With the high valuations of personal property, I think there will be a, a bit of a windfall and that they should use those for capital improvements or you know, raising teacher pay. So we've seen a number of school districts shift to a four-day school week, like most notably the independent school district in your neck of the woods. What do you think about school districts doing that? You're, well, you're right, Jason. I um, And part of that district is one that I used to represent, so it's an issue that, that uh, hit very close to home. I don't think uh, that having kids go to school uh, four days a week is good for the kid or good for the parents. Um, you know, we have historically low unemployment right now. The problem is not the jobs, it's getting people into the jobs. And how do you work as a parent when now you have an extra day that you don't have uh, childcare? So I think it, it plays into to the workforce, it plays into the, the development of the child. I have not talked to anybody in my district or constituents that are in favor of this uh, four-day school week. And I think, I think the reason that they give is that um, it's hard to recruit and re- retain teachers, and this is a benefit. I think we need to do other things to get the best teachers out there, and I think a lot of that has to do with teacher pay. It, it, yeah, you, you kind of hit on one of my other points, that if you're in a two-parent household and both parents work, like I don't know how a four-day school week works unless the, the child is physically in that building on the fifth day. And even though I think that there are some schools that are offering that, I mean, others may not have the staffing to actually accomplish that, especially if they're giving the teachers, you know, an extra day. Um, But I guess conversely, the argument I've heard for a four day public school week is teachers like that, like that having only four days and it gives them more time to plan. So what, what do you think of that argumentation? I can see that. I can see where working four days and and having a time to plan would be a benefit. That's why I think it has to be, well, we want you to work five days, uh, but we're willing to compensate you for what what you deserve. And and we want teachers to be paid more. I I don't think teachers, nobody that that I know thinks teachers are paid enough to do the work that they do. I can't imagine doing the work uh, that they do, taking care of, you know, 20 third graders. 
Uh, so they deserve to be paid more. I think we we have to say we need you to work five days. It's it's best for the child. It's best for uh, the community. Um, but we're willing to compensate you for what you deserve when you do that. What does raising teacher pay look like to you? Is it through kind of a grant program? Is it raising the floor of the minimum of teacher pay? I'm curious, like, what that looks like. Well, there was recently a Blue Ribbon Commission, and some of our the, the lawmakers from the General Assembly served on it that were school teachers and superintendents. So I, I really respect what they uh, put out. They put out essentially nine points, and six of those had to do with teacher pay. And those were that you have to have a, a minimum um, that you pay teachers in the state, and it has to be far higher than the 25000 that's the state minimum right now. I think that's the first thing we could do. We did that last year with a, essentially a one-time grant. I think realistically we will need to keep that going because you can't take it away after it's been there. And I think we've reached this sort of point where everybody agrees we have to do something or it will it will be a crisis. I know we use that word a lot, but we, if we can't find teachers, there's going to be more four-day school weeks, and it's just it's going to wreak havoc. You know, I talked to uh, Senate Minority Leader John Rizzo about teacher pay. I mean, his district is independence. He talks about how, you know, his own kids would have to face a four-day school week. And, and we talked about teacher retainment. And part of it, you know, he said part of it's pay, but another part is teacher morale and making sure teachers are feeling valued. And when bills pass, such as maybe limiting what teachers can teach or allowing parents to have more involvement or even possibly sco sue schools. That creates kind of an environment where it feels like teachers versus parents, children. I'm kind of how do you address that as well? I mean, pay is one thing, but also making sure they feel valued. That's an interesting point. I think, uh, you know, we want our teachers to, to be there and teach the kids. Uh, I can see where they might think, um, you know, the, some of the laws that we have are trying to impose burdens on them. That is that could not be further from the truth. What what we're really trying to do is is protect the kids and make sure that kids and parents are deciding what's being taught in schools. Like I said, I have uh, the utmost respect for teachers and the and the job they have to do, but we do have to be mindful that teacher or kids and parents ought to be able to control what they uh, get in their schools. Okay, so I think another issue that a lot of Republicans have have talked about over the last year or two is going after critical race theory in school. But I really think that that's an avatar for diversity curriculum writ large. I don't think it's just critical race theory because there's not a lot of evidence that critical race theory is being taught in public schools. It's I, from my understanding is that specific class is a law school level class so but i but i think that every year you hear bills about wanting to get rid of crt in schools so with that kind of backdrop what's the republicans posture toward this issue i think i think you're right i'm, I'm not sure that crt is being taught widely throughout the school although it's not something that um, i'd be in favor for of teaching young kids and i'll talk about that in a second I think there is good legislation out there that that um, empowers students and parents, but it is not punitive to teachers. I think Senator Koenig has Senate Bill 4, which is uh, sort of an education uh, bill that, that almost passed last year. I think it should have passed last year. It just ran out of time. But it's it's I think it's billed as a, a, a parent's bill of rights. And it has in there that parents have the right to see what's being taught. Uh, to their kids. Parents have a right to uh, know if their kid is receiving medi medical uh, treatment at uh, schools. 
uh, it says that you can't teach that one group of people is inherently better than another or are inherently racist because of who they are. But it also has protections for teachers and says you can teach history. You can teach that we have done that we have a great history as a country, but we have not always lived up to our ideals, and you can talk about that. I think it's a good middle ground uh, bill, and it kind of does what we want it to do. With respect to CRT, I agree with you. I think it's uh, nobody has a great definition for it, but it seems to be this sort of catch-all analytic framework that really should be discussed at a postgraduate level. And I'm not sure that you know my third grader who is who's trying to learn what eight times eight is needs to be you know exposed to CRT at this point. I think uh, we need to learn about our history, but to teach kids that one group is inherently better than another or is inherently racist is that's the wrong thing to do. So what would this? What would be the? What, let's just say a school district te- like has curriculum that runs afoul of that definition, which frankly is pretty subjective, like what would the state do to that school district? I think within the bill, you would report them to uh, DESE. And then um, if they continue to do that, they could lose school funding if they continue to to break the rules. An area that seems to have uh, bipartisan support is the topic of child care. You know, what policies would you like to see regarding child care? You know, is it policy? Is it funding? I'm curious kind of what that looks like to you. I think this is the thing that uh, people aren't talking about as much pre-session that I think is going to be a big thing uh, at the end of session uh, because childcare care is, um, is so important. Like, like I said earlier, we're having trouble finding people to work, and, uh, and the burden a lot of times falls on women, and so they can't be in the workforce. We want people to be able to work, but child care is a huge issue. There are uh, specific bills that I think uh, help address that. There's a bill by Senator Arthur and Representative Brenda Shields that would increase the number of three to five-year-olds that can get, that can attend preschool, which is uh, good for the student and uh, is child care. I, I don't know anything more than you do, but I do think that we're going to be hearing about something with regard to doing something for businesses that will uh, incentivize them to whether it's on-site child care or giving their employees a benefit to go out and get child care that would incentivize those businesses in some way. So I would like to see something, whether it's a tax credit for the businesses or, or, or using grants or whatever it, it is, to get businesses to, to assist with child care. Yeah, so you would be kind of more on board for an incentivizing rather than kind of like a mandate, carrot versus stick. Absolutely, yeah. Provide incentives, but uh, it, it's so important to getting people in the workforce that I think it's going to be a, a big thing this session. Uh, I want to move on to a different topic. One of the other major aspects of Speaker Plocker's speech was decrying violent crime that's affected Missouri's cities. What would Republicans want to do to specifically deal with this issue? Well, I've seen a number of uh, proposals out there. And, and again, these are just these are bills that have been filed that that are the starting point for a discussion. Um, I think Representative Lane Roberts has a good bill out there that's sort of a omnibus um, crime bill. And it has in there, of course, uh, allowing the governor to declare a, a state where the attorney general could come in and, and prosecute violent crimes. Uh, it, has, it has things in there where people being released from uh, incarceration would get birth certificates and IDs so they can go out and get jobs. It kind of tightens up the laws on um, uh, unlawful possession of a firearm. So I think we'd like to st- start there. But crime is a is a huge issue, you know, and getting the the 
people to move to Missouri and get businesses here, they're not going to do that if, if they don't feel safe. Obviously, you're a Kansas City area lawmaker, but there's been some noise from some Republicans about wanting to yank, quote unquote, local control away from the city of St. Louis Police Department. And I'm just going to be very I want to make sure our listeners understand what that means. St. Louis, like Kansas City, used to have a board that was primarily appointed by the governor run the police department. There was a ballot initiative in the 2010s that essentially gave the mayor's office in St. Louis control over the police department. So with that wordy explanation out of the way, what does your caucus think about moving to a Kansas City style governance for St. Louis? I'm not sure the caucus has a position yet, but I I know I've spoken with a number of the St. Louis representatives and uh, some uh, law enforcement representatives from St. Louis, and uh, it seems like they are very much in in favor of it. Um, I've looked at it, and I think there's there's good things and bad things about doing it. Like I said, I'm from Kansas City, and we have uh, state control, um, so I think it's going to be a one of the big bigger things that we discuss this session. Uh, like I said, there's there's upsides and downsides to it. I think in the past it was given back to St. Louis because the state um, felt that we didn't want it. So now I think that experiment's been done and we're going to take it or try to take control of it back. So I think that's a discussion that we're going to have, but I'm not sure the entire caucus has a position on it, but I, I feel like the St. Louis representatives are generally in favor of it. St. Louis just brought in a new police chief from Wilmington, Delaware. Shouldn't the state give him a chance to see how he can fight crime before we radically change how his department is governed? I think that's one of the arguments that, that people will make. And I think I, th- I think it's a value, valid argument. But I think what, what we would say is that crime has gotten to be such an issue in St. Louis that, that we might need to take action sooner rather than later. One thing that Democrats in particular have been pretty vocal in supporting is instituting what is known as red flag laws. And again, I wanted to find what a red flag law is. Um, it's generally the idea that if somebody is a danger to themselves or others, there could be a judicial proceeding to take away weapons from that person. I- I've gotten the sense Republicans are not super wild about this idea. Like, what is kind of your caucus's posture towards this? proposal? Well, you know, a a peculiar thing happened in the last two years in that uh, gun deaths have become the number one killer of children in this country, surpassing car accidents and and disease. So we are very mindful that gun violence is is an issue. Um, And some of these uh, laws that are being looked at, we will give them the attention that that they deserve, these uh, emergency risk protection orders. What I can tell you is that the, you have to weigh that. We have to weigh those bills against the citizens' right to, to have property and defend themselves. And I think you're right that, that House Republicans would be very, very leery about doing anything that infringes upon the Second Amendment rights of our citizens. Um, I want to talk about... Uh... IP reform, which is something that we have talked about before, yeah. uh, but I think that that's also a pretty priority this year. Uh, Republicans seem to be rallying around the idea that it should be harder to amend Missouri's constitution. What specific plan do you think will get traction? Well, that's a good question. There are a number of different proposals out there. What I would tell your listeners is that what we feel like is that the constitution of the state ought to be 
the foundation for our governance and our democracy, just like the U.S. Constitution is. And the U.S. Constitution um, has a very high barrier to uh, changing it, which, which is good. If you take a look at our constitutional initiative uh, petition process, it takes 50% plus one of people voting on that day. And we think that if you're changing the Constitution, it should be something that's higher, that reflects you know, consensus and compromise. And you don't have that with just a, a simple majority. It's also important to note that we are not trying to change the citizens' ability to, to veto legislation that we pass through a veto referendum or to pass laws through the initiative process just to change the Constitution. Wouldn't a better idea be if Republicans don't like a specific ballot initiative to run better campaigns against them? Um, the campaigns against a minimum wage increase and Medicaid expansion, for instance, were not great. <laughs> the anti-recreational marijuana campaign was also underfunded. Yeah, and that proves, I think that uh, demonstrates the point that the, the initiatives that, that do pass and that are offered are, they have an advantage when they have moneyed interests behind them. And I think you know, you've seen that recently. Um, that special interests can come in, they have the money to fund these campaigns and get the changes to the Constitution that they want. Why do you think that a because this proposal will have to go to voters. Why do you think that this proposal will fare better than one in Arkansas, which failed pretty miserably? Yeah, it did. I think it failed 60-40. But I'll tell you, on the Arkansas IP reform, I don't think I myself would have voted for it because it did change the statutory provisions as well. So it, it was included in that. There are, and we would not have that. Like we said, if citizens want to pass laws, we would still leave you the ability to do that. We're talking just the Constitution here. Is there more urgency to put something on the ballot on this topic? Because there's been a lot of rumblings about how foes of Missouri's abortion ban are going to try to put something on the 2024 ballot and that raising the threshold for a constitutional amendment, if this proposal is a constitutional amendment, could make that uh, repeal and replace of the abortion ban harder to pass. I, I really don't think so. This is something that we've been discussing at, at all the years I've been in the legislature. We've passed it out of the House. It says it's it's something that's been a priority for us every year. I think uh, just with the makeup of of the different houses now, I think it has the best chance of passing, and that's why you're hearing more about it. But this is something that. It doesn't have a, a huge lobbyist lobbying for it. In fact, they're probably against it. Uh, it's just something that we think is the right thing to do. And I also think that if Democrats were smart that, and had you know, foresight, they would uh, want this as well because as unthinkable as it is that um, we would have a, a Democrat-led Missouri someday, that could happen and that will happen someday. And um, just think of all the things that Republicans could pass through the IP process if that were to happen. Let, let's just say for the safe, sake of argument that Missourians reject changes to the constitutional threshold in August of 2024 and that there is a constitutional amendment to legalize abortion in November 2024. Like, how do you think that abortion initiative would fare among voters? Because when we were asking uh, crystal quaid about it like they're they're coming up with an idea of what is actually in this proposal and it seems like it's going to dominate discussions over the next few months and couple of years if it comes to pass 
I don't know how it would fare. I think it would depend on what exactly is in the IP, uh, the initiative petition. If it's something very extreme, I, I, I think there's a good chance that it doesn't pass. So, But you never know at this point with because the, the campaigns haven't come out and, and made their cases. But I think there is a chance that it could not pass if it's too extreme for the state. That's all the time we have. Thank you so much, Representative Patterson, for joining us on the show. Politically Speaking is a product of St. Louis Public Radio, which is a part of the University of Missouri-St. Louis. You can follow all of our work at stlpr.org. And Representative Patterson, where can people find you on the Internet where you want to be found? I think they could find me on Facebook. I don't do Twitter or anything like that. Good good man. (laughs) Yeah. (laughs) All right. Well, thank you so much. Until next time, so long.